0: Before we get started, I wanted to mention that on this episode, we will be discussing current and speculative psychiatric treatments. And while our guest today is a trained board-certified psychiatrist, this podcast should not be considered a source for medical advice. If you're curious about the treatments we're discussing today, please consult with your doctor. Thank you.
1: Oh no, do you have a cold?
0: no 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 maybe just i was outside in the yard like doing yard work a little earlier and there's like pollen everywhere maybe. michael pollen <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna get that joke until they listen to the rest of the podcast welcome to transpose a podcast in every episode industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into
1: the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders,
0: innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption, and a little humor along the way. Welcome to Transpose, I'm Justin Dobb, and with me as always is fellow technologist, futurist, and innovator Anju Ahuja. On this episode, we're going to talk about how innovation can be truly mind-altering. Stay tuned. So we really have an interesting topic today. Uh, We're going to talk about psychedelics and psychology. I am super
1: curious if people are going to key in on the transformative aspects of our topic today or on the technical aspects of an innovative use of the main ingredient in a common psychedelic for treating a variety of ailments, such as PTSD. So there's lots in here. And to some extent, medicine and biology are their own technologies. And we'll probably talk about the intersection of some of that too. So Abed, before we launch into your formal intro, We like to torture our guests with a series of words that we think describe them and their personality and to kind of just make it more vivid and accessible. So are you ready for your list?
2: Yes. Here are your
1: symbols. Empathetic, deep listener, observant, mellow. You're actually the mellowest person I know. Artistic, DJ producer, experimental, and unconditionally patient. So, wow.
0: pretend That's awesome. you and Justin,
1: uh, I'm, you know, I've known you for a long time. So, knowing someone for 30 years allows you to create a pretty, pretty good <laughs> list. Um, and, and like I said, some of those traits are really very unique to you. And I don't see them across a lot of our super set of friends all that often. So, it's, it's an honor to have you on here sharing yourself with us. So,
2: uh, I appreciate that. And- That's really nice. That, that was, I thought the list was great, too. I loved it.
1: I will send it to you, or you can have it in the recording.
0: <laughs> we can make a word cloud for you. There you go.
1: <laughs> a T-shirt. We should have a Transpose Podcast T-shirt. Everybody should get their words as a word cloud. All
0: right. All right. I'll, so, I'll put that on, on your to-do list.
1: Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well played. So so pretend you just met Justin, which actually you are just meeting Justin. And you're going to tell him about who you are and what is about to happen this week, which is an amazing piece of news. So I guess we'll say what happened last week, which is an amazing piece of news. Um, tell us all about you.
2: Yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, I'm you know, my name is Abed Nazir. I'm a psychiatrist and I've been practicing psychiatry basically since two, I graduated residency in 2009. And since then I've been in practice, uh, in a variety of different settings. And now I'm basically kind of transitioning into a lot more of the business side of psychiatry and really trying to Kind of pave a path for a new treatment that I think is just extremely important that it's available to people because it can save lives you know psychedelic medicine. Um, I own my own practice we'll I know we'll get into that uh, I live born and raised in the Chicago area. I have a wife who's also a physician uh, she works full time we have twin five year olds boy girl
1: twin nuggets um, like, they rock.
2: Ne- <laughs> yes, the Twin Nuggets. They have a good Facebook following and everything. People people are always looking for what their next uh, post is going to be about. But, you know, they're pretty much everything now in my world. And, you know, it's really been amazing last, you know, five years since they've been born.
1: Abid, tell us about the big news.
2: Yes. Yeah, so my practice at you know, advanced psychiatric solutions, you know, we had two locations in Chicago and, you know, we basically... Have just completed a acquisition sale, so we have been acquired by Wisana Health, um, and I will be taking on the role now of Chief Medical Officer for Wisana. And Wisana is a, it's a versatile company. They have they're actually I guess based in technically Canada. However, you know the founders um, are from are they they live in Chicago actually. One is Daniel Carcillo. He's Um, a professional hockey player who retired in 2015. He was on the Chicago Blackhawks championship team um, and he suffered from, you know, TBI and PTSD um, and his life was, uh, you know, improved dramatically and with, uh, you know, Psychedelic medicine. So he started this company, and he we have research and development happening for psilocybin um, with CBD compound. Um, We will be studying uh, MDMA for TBI, traumatic brain injury. Being he's from the you know sports world, Uh, traumatic brain injury is a huge issue with all the concussions that you see in contact sports. So one of the places that we are really trying to gather like you know world experts and novel technologies to try to make a dent in TBI um, and the amount of TBI out there and hopefully even from a young age prevent TBI by tracking certain things in the brain and being able to identify it earlier if somebody's playing like youth sports um, and contact sports when they're younger. Um, now. The acquisition is of my practices, which are the home sites, the luminary sites for a clinical infrastructure. So we're building, hopefully we're looking to mix between building and acquiring, you know, somewhere in that range of 30, 40 clinics over the next two, three years here. Um, with, so we'll get a nice national footprint. It'll be, you know, clinics mostly based off of the model that my clinic is, which is a comprehensive psychiatric practice with expertise and offering psychedelic medicine and ketamine therapy and things like that. So that, that is like the foundation. We're starting here. We're building a couple more in Chicago area, and we're already looking at other states now, Oregon, New Mexico, um, various places. We've been talking um, to places. So we're going to be kind of making a really good big splash here, I think, in the psychedelic world. This is more comprehensive, so they have a real focus on doing evidence-based Um, medically validated uh, uh, treatments, which I like. That definitely fits in with me. Um, They also have, you know, part of the acquisition is with SciTech, which is the company I was, I was originally talking to for a while. It was months in the making of my practices being acquired by SciTech and being their CMO. So SciTech started, um, you know, a solutions device where we're Got a, you can use a Garmin, Fitbit, or Apple Watch, and a patient puts on a device. Uh, and yeah. then there's an app facing the patient, and we're collecting, like, biometric data, like heart rate variability, um, you know, activity, sleep. We can tell if somebody's panicking, having nightmares, not leaving their bed, you know, things like that. And it goes into a dashboard for a practitioner who's treating that with psychedelic mm-hmm. um, medicine like ketamine for now but psychedelic medicine in the future and actually coalesce all that data and we're actually trying to build best practices so putting that over a clinical infrastructure and then we have a very extensive network um of you know, like through Wisana and through Daniel's network and through Psytec's network being a, they were actually originally a a networking and events education company within the psychedelic space. So putting all that together, clinics, device solutions, R&D, drug development, um, you know, putting it all in one kind of sphere together. So Wisana is, you know, it's traded on the Canadian exchanges, but very soon hopefully we will be trying to get onto the U.S. exchanges Um, So it's all very exciting for me. Um, I'll be, you know, really honing in and just trying to play the role of chief medical officer to help, you know, expand, uh, you know, Lusana as fast and best as I can.
1: So now I get to officially congratulate you. I've, I've sort of seen or heard inklings of this coming, but this is super exciting. And, you know, what a great position to be in as a thought leader and an innovator in your space. Shout out to you and your colleagues and everybody that's working in the mental health space. I think pre-pandemic mental health was not really as well understood or known the importance of it or how to cultivate mental well-being. And I think the pandemic has really brought to light issues around loneliness and depression and alcoholism is on the uptake. And there's so many awful things that are happening to us. It's just Derived from this experience of being in this midst of this pandemic, and maybe not having the social support networks that people did have before. So, um, so anyway, thank you for what you're doing there. I think it's really important that people embrace the opportunity to be better and feel better.
0: And it feels like what you're describing in WISANA is the 21st century approach to this kind yep. of care.
2: Yeah, that definitely keeping science and you know validated medical approach, but being Very open to like bringing in anything that can actually help and that actually helps studying it. You know, there's like a whole mix of things that we're going to look at. Somebody might need brain rehab, basically. Somebody might just need transcranial magnetic stimulation. Somebody might not just need psychedelics. So putting it all under one umbrella, but not just making claims without having the scientific backup of it.
1: So remind me, you're the only one in your family that went down the path of psychiatry, correct?
2: Well, you know, now I have my sister-in-law is a psychiatrist, uh, my wife's sister, and uh, my wife's aunt is a psychiatrist. But in my actual family growing up, yes, I'm the only one. And that is the only reason I went to med school is to be a psychiatrist. So if I wasn't doing psychiatry, I would not have pursued medicine as a field.
1: So was that like a vocation, like a calling? I didn't actually know this, by the way.
2: So, you know, it started probably back, you know, back in high school, you think, you think because your friends bring, you know, come to you with, with their problems and want to discuss your, the go-to for, uh, you know, your friends to, kind of have a sit down and talk it out on whatever they're going through and being told you're a good listener. Um, That was my initial like justification that I'd be good at psychiatry. But reality is actually that that's not really accurate in psychiatry. I would say that what I you know saying i want to be a psychiatrist but really what that meant was really i sh- i want to be a psychologist or a counselor or a therapist you know whatever level because they do more of the psychotherapy part of it than psychiatrists do and psychiatrists you know really spend a lot more time on medication and the biology so i guess i was my premise was off you need to be a good listener to be a psychiatrist that's for sure so i think that helps me but I made that decision about ninth grade that this is what I want to do is be a psychiatrist. Um, And then, you know, seeing, you know, like friends and family go through depression or anxiety over the years that followed just solidified it that this is the right
0: field for me to pursue. So can you talk a little bit about what makes the way you've been practicing psychiatry uh, for the past few years unique or progressive?
2: So you know, it started, I opened it five years ago, you know, a a private psychiatry clinic, but when I opened it, the purpose of opening it was to be the first to offer ketamine, IV ketamine for treatment refractory psychiatric conditions. And this is back in 2016. So at that point, um, there was no other clinic doing this there was one clinic that opened up maybe about a week before us it was not a psychiatrist running it and i was done about a week later with you know being that we're treating a psychiatric condition uh, to me it's pretty important that the person administering ketamine a whole new way of t- approaching uh you know the treatment plan should be, you know, at least specialized in psychiatry and know what they're treating and be comprehensive, be able yes. to treat all of it, not just Skills administer. Matter. Yeah. So 28 clinics, I think, came um, after our clinic opened up over the last four years. But I mean, only a couple of them have psychiatric involvement. So that I think was a big distinct uh, distinguishing point of practice is that we were actually a psychiatric practice. And when patients come in and they they used to come from far and away to get this because there was nowhere you could go at that time. Back in 2017, people used to fly, you know, even two, three States over, um, and really get the treatment. But, you know, now it's a lot more available, but that was really the point was that, Hey, we'll be able to treat your medications. We'll be able to give you therapy. We'll be able to look at the whole condition that we're treating and do it in a more comprehensive and, I'm not going to say in a safer manner physically, but in a safer manner psychiatrically um, to be able to screen out for conditions that should not get this new treatment um, and be able to recognize when something is happening that should not be happening from a psychiatric standpoint or managing somebody's expectation when they come in and they tell you on their first encounter that if this doesn't work, you know, my plan is to end my life. I've tried wow. every other treatment possible and this is my last hope. So, you know, that's a tricky situation that you want to keep their hope through the process, you want to ma- also manage unrealistic expectations and keep in track of safety. So, it's a lot, you know, and that's a skill set that should be reserved I think for psychiatry. So, those are the things that really I think stood the practice out, but right when just by offering IV ketamine, which in, you know, that was just Pretty new back in twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen. Um, it was uh, it was kind of like a reason for other, I would say, practitioners in the area to really question what I was up to. You know, the <laughs> side, side glances that you know, telling their patients, "Don't." You've go always to had him. this like
1: quiet, under the radar maverick thing going on with you. Like yeah, you know, I, you were I, a DJ for a while <laughs> before any of us knew it.
2: <laughs> I was trying. I was trying to. I don't know, I guess approach it in a safe way and a quiet way because I didn't want to attract attention to me. But at the same time, how am I going to get patients <laughs> to be aware that there's this new treatment that is you know, m- more than twice as effective as what they're used to getting and it's available for them? How am I going to do that when nobody knows about it? So obviously we had to market a lot in the beginning um, you know, like radio and things like that. And so we had to get ourselves put ourselves out there. Um, which when patients would come to us, we would always say, we need to speak to your treating psychiatrist. And they'd say, don't, don't talk to them. They, they told me if I come see you, they're going to, you know, fire me as a patient basically.
1: Wow. So you were kind of ostracized by your community of colleagues?
2: Yeah. Well, it was either, it was either, yeah, ostracized or it was actually, um, a lot of support. It was like one or the other. Okay. Um, people had opinions, but many of the people in my field were questioning and doubting why I would be offering this when it's not FDA approved. It's too soon. And to be honest, just knee-jerk reaction that, oh, well, ketamine is addictive or psychedelics are addictive, um, which is not actually completely accurate. It really depends um, you know, on the how, how it's offered and how you give it, but it can actually help addiction. a lot of data to support that so i was yeah i was looked at um kind of as a a risk taking you know maybe he's a little out there or it was like hey this is the one this is the person to go to because i'm struggling with improving you and he's offering something new so i mean it was both it was a mixed bag but you know once uh once it kind of gained traction and and the fda approved an offshoot of ketamine called spravato that was back in you know, maybe two years ago, and when that came out and FDA approved it, suddenly the room was filled when we'd go to bravado training with the same people who I know may have, (laughs) you know, actually I did know, but, you know, my patients (laughs) would tell me, Um, but they're all in there trying to learn it now, now that the FDA gave their blessing. So
0: So when that was, you know, considered experimental still or off-label, when was the moment or what was it like when you realized, this is something you needed to offer?
2: Um, You know, it it was actually, I was looking at the data on it, like leading up to opening the clinic. And 2013, there was this kind of landmark study where Dr. Zarate, he was in National Institute of Mental Health, and he conducted the first ketamine IV study kind of in an accessible way where how do you actually offer it? Like what kind of dosing, what kind of schedule? And, you know, that landmark study that was a landmark study so when that came out i started like you know i was like oh that would be awesome to be able to give that but never at all occurred to me that i need to be the one to bring it to this area i i was just like in awe of how effective it was but then you know it was funny one day i got a call from like you know a lot of times we get like offers as physicians to do like a survey or a 60 minute phone you know conversation and they'll They'll pay you money, basically, for your opinion on things. So I did one of those, and the whole thing was about ketamine. It was all about ketamine. Um, so I, you know, I discussed my viewpoint on it, which was very favorable, that there's a suicide epidemic here, and this is the most effective thing we have, that yeah. we can actually offer patients for suicide. I'd be all for it. Then uh, maybe a week or two after I did that, I got a call from this company um, that their purpose was like their, what their whole mission was, was to get psychiatrists and help them establish IV ketamine into their practices by telling them what to order, like, you know, the protocols, they try to take care of the front end, um, collect payment, help scheduling. Um, And so that kind of support network was, as soon as they approached me, I was all in. That's when I decided, oh, because I'm not just literally doing it all on my own. I have this you know, I have a company who's opened yeah. up at that point, 10 of them. So I'm like, this is a support enough for me to do it. So that's what got me to make that move. Yeah.
1: So for the the technical types in our audience, can you, in as lay terms as possible, explain why is ketamine effective at treating depression? And then if you can also segue into psilocybin in therapy for PTSD and other ailments, like why do these work? at the biology level?
2: I would say, when I usually try to frame how do these work, I usually will say it in you know, two, three different ways. Like there's the biology, then there's the psychological benefit, and that's a little different than the biological benefit. Um, so just starting the biology part of it, we normally, right now, for the last I don't know, 30, 40 years, we're even longer, we're in the era of monoamine Neurotransmitter hypothesis, which basically we're talking about when you hear serotonin, mm-hmm. dopamine, mm-hmm. norepinephrine, these think of them as like hormones in your in your central nervous system, and they're going brain cell to brain cell, and then they regulate different emotions, um, and different psychiatric symptoms, um, as well as even non-psychiatric symptoms. So, looking at what we had been using. You know, we went from an era when it was very psychoanalytic, meaning it was all the Freudian, you know, kind of approach. Or it could be sit on the couch. It's really about going back to the past and trying to discover, you know, what are the root causes of why you feel what you feel now. Um, It switched into a very biological. It was a swing right into this that, you know, depression is a medical condition and there's a biological basis and the basis was basically the thought was that serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, these neurotransmitters, if they're going brain cell to brain cell and you're transmitting them, you know, they're functioning and doing what they're supposed to do. Dopamine helps with like reward and pleasure, uh, motivation. You know, norepinephrine can help with pain, energy, sense of well-being serotonin does like anxiety, obsessions. And so they have a variety of functions. And then if you transmit them, they have to go through a receptor and the serotonin receptor or norepinephrine receptor or dopamine receptor, they're on the next nerve cell. And when there's no receptor, then that serotonin that gets released, for example, can't move forward. And if it can't move forward, it goes right back up where it came from. They call that reuptake. So when that happens and your levels are low, your brain starts getting rid of the extra receptors, they call that auto regulation. And it basically just kind of kills off the ones it's not using in a way. Mm -hmm. So now your capacity to actually transmit serotonin is lower. So example, you're like, let's just say you, um, you know, you're at a funeral and you're every, you look around, everybody's crying, right? Everybody, everybody looks clinically depressed, Mm -hmm. um, but they're not right. They're, they're grieving, um, their serotonin, you know release could be lower but the receptors are still there so once they process the grief and their serotonin levels go up they'll be transmitting again they'll be okay or if somebody smokes a joint and gets a panic attack you know they don't necessarily have panic disorder the you know the weed probably did that and plummeted the serotonin levels so as long as they stay clear of weed they should be fine but if your levels stay down long enough then your brain starts getting rid of the extra receptors so now you could be sitting with your, you know, loved one, watching Netflix, and you don't know why, but you're sad or you're anxious, even though you sh- you feel like mentally you're like I should not be feeling this, um, and that's because anything good you're doing might you know increase serotonin release, but you don't have that capacity to transmit it, so medicines like Prozac, which is selective for serotonin, Mm -hmm. and it prevents the reuptake, like it prevents the serotonin from reabsorbing when it can't go forward. It normally reabsorbs, but now it kind of blocks it from that and it builds up between nerve cells, which right away does nothing good. It does not help you. That's why most people really have an issue with, um, you know, traditional antidepressants is because you actually feel worse. If you have too much serotonin, That's built up, you can't transmit it because there's no receptors on the next cell. So it goes everywhere else. It goes in your gut, it goes everywhere, and you get these negative effects. Now, if when you keep taking it, now we now we're going into the reason of why it takes so long to kick in, two to four weeks, your brain is rebuilding receptors because it notices there's a lot more serotonin, so it's upregulating, and then you start feeling better. Problem is success rate's like 30% roughly. For you know traditional pharmacology for depression, so ketamine is like coming at it a whole different angle. It's coming at it from what I call like the king and queen neurotransmitter of the brain, which is like glutamate and GABA. Glutamate's like the gas pedal, mm-hmm. GABA is like the brakes of the whole nervous system. So eighty percent of like neur- neuronal transmission is actually glutamate and GABA. So when you're anxious or depressed, your brake and gas pedal balance is not right. Um, so when you take ketamine and you you take this in a very kind of specific manner like it's a very fine-tuned medicine like individualized it's a weight-based medicine and if we keep it in a certain dosing range then what happens is a few things happen one is that your 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 gas pedal and brake kind of reset quickly the glutamate modulation and gaba they kind of get into a nice balance again and then there's The next thing that's actually happening is that it's causing what we call neuroplasticity. So it's like reforming brain connections. These highways that these neurotransmitters travel on, if you're depressed for a while, those pathways get broken. So there's actually protein building happening from ketamine, which is actually acting to release this thing called brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, which is like somebody on a blowhorn like signaling the repairmen of the brain to start building those tracks again fixing the Brilliant. potholes you know on the highway and the highway's not been used um so it actually repairs that so while you're repairing your brain is actually malleable and you can you know like learn new behaviors and new mindset and new cognitive framework um that's something that you know, SSRIs and like traditional medications we've been using don't do, this kind of neuroplasticity is builds on itself over the course of ketamine through, you know, we do several six infusions over two to three weeks. And all that time, it's building and building where you're actually getting improvement and connecting your connections and you're reshaping your brain. So that's the biological, um, you know, benefit of ketamine. And psychedelics do that even better and more effectively. Um, but they also do another really unique aspect where they turn the the default mode network off. And that is this connections in the brain specific area. That's like basically everything that's happening in your mind, all the thinking and daydreaming and dialogue in your mind when you're not doing something consciously, Mm -hmm. that is, overactive for people that have depression or anxiety um and even obsess obsessive compulsive disorder like it Mm -hmm. could be so intense where that is dictating everything that you're you can't really focus on anything else it's because your brain has become constricted into this one kind of like pattern so the default mode network turning it off turns all those thoughts off and the, it gets quiet in your brain um, it clears out all that noise and that allows you to be present um, in the moment listen to somebody uh, be present when you're listening be and really kind of live life from a whole different vantage point something that people have Not been able to experience that for let's it's been decades, and they can, after one dose, um, you know, of a psychedelic, especially when you're combining it with therapy and prep, and you do it, could be it could be life changing, just instantaneous switch like that gets flipped, and you're open again.
1: So, without revealing obviously anything confidential about your patients, is there an anecdote or a story you can tell us about a patient that came in with? you know, in a, in a sad state of mental affairs and, you know, left in a completely different condition, positive condition, obviously. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That'd be better.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That would be better. Yeah. Um, And that is usually the case actually, most of the time. Um, Now, actually uh, I would say, I mean, even from the first one, I was just amazed at the next time the person came in. but this one patient in particular had tried everything you can imagine had been pretty much determined you know to end her life, and you know this was kind of a like a last ditch effort to see if it could get better um very you know maybe hard for her to even trust a psychiatr a psychiatrist just from all the past failed attempts at treatment. And, you know, I was with her mom. Her mom was there as well and really, just really nice people and just want to help them so bad. And and when we do the initial infusion, the very first time, you know, we measure your depression, we measure your anxiety, and it showed, you know, really high off-the-chart level of depression. We do a rating scale and that PHQ-9 and that score showed extremely severe, almost the highest you can score. But... The next time that she came in, so I mean, there was concern about safety. There was no it, like real interaction, smiling or normal, normal like social approach. It was actually kind of a more of an intense um, helplessness that was palpable, and, and mm-hmm. the anxiety was there. But the next time she walked in, I mean, she basically hugged my practice manager, hugged me, and mom was in tears, and so like she's like, "I have my daughter back." I have my daughter back. She ate dinner with us, first time in 15 years. First time she's talked about anything future-looking. And this was just after the one treatment. By the time we got our score on the third one and then the sixth one, I mean, it had dropped from the 26 out of 27, which is really severe, and it had dropped down to a two by the sixth one. So,
1: And this was psilocybin, correct? Not
2: ketamine? No, this is ketamine. That was
1: ketamine. Okay. We don't have
2: psilocybin available yet, right? So, and that's a whole different discussion because no psychedelics are available in Illinois. Um, And really, they're still Schedule 1. So psilocybin is still federally considered illegal. Um, There are now municipalities and states that are, you know, Oregon was the first state where they've approved it for medical use. But that's not actually in use yet. It takes, takes like a year to set it all up. So we're not there yet but it will change everything when we fast forward five years it'll be a whole different discussion it'll i think it'll become the standard of care the only thing we have available right now to play with in this arena is ketamine and ketamine is not really a psychedelic to be honest if you're gonna be technical it affects you know like different it doesn't affect the same way a traditional psychedelic affects the certain subtypes of receptors however it does cause dissociation, which is like getting pulled out of your body, which is basically like an altered mental state and a new vantage point, which is the underlying benefit to psychedelics. And that biological benefit is always supported with ketamine. This is very similar now to psychedelics. When somebody is infusing ketamine, you're having an experience that hard to put in the words and it basically your vantage point is different you could be having vivid memories of things you haven't thought of in a long time you could feel like you're almost kind of going on a journey it could be very spiritual you can see yourself in a different light and who you are, it's like, we call, we call this ego death. It's like who you think you are and what your definition of self is can get dissolved and reborn again in, in a new framework. Or if you're, let's say, post-traumatic stress disorder, now you have the trauma coming back into your brain in a whole new vantage point. You start getting panicky when you start getting those memories. But for a lot of people, suddenly the panic subsides. And they're able to look at it from a whole different vantage point without all that associated anxiety. And suddenly they feel like that trauma memory doesn't have a grip in them the same way. And this is why, you know, integrative therapy is so important. You need a support system from the counselor, from the therapist who understands um, how to really make the most out of this experience. Now, when you come out of a treatment like that, you could, I, I hear this a lot. That was like you know, four years of regular therapy, I've been doing all in 45 minutes. Wow.
1: <laughs> That's a lot.
2: Yeah, it, it's, it's intense. I mean, honestly, it's not, you know, it pe- people wonder like, well, if you're, you, you know, a patient just coming and getting high there? You know, like, is that what they're doing? Now, you know, to me, it's, all, we don't have like time for that kind of a discussion that, hey, you know, like they need to understand there are, you know, there's an epidemic happening Um, for there's a suicide and depression epidemic and our treatments don't work and there's even you know like the opioid epidemic and these you know these new therapies they work far better than anything we have so my goal is you know make it accessible and ketamine i wanted it to be available when you compare long-term side effects to you know an ssri you can't really just assume that ketamine's more dangerous long-term at all in fact i'd almost argue the opposite
1: so I'm just going to come right out and ask, because it's my job to ask some politically incorrect questions. Do you think the reason why psilocybin has not progressed as quickly through the regulatory approvals and all of the related approvals is because of the baggage that it's burdened with from, you know, the days of the psychedelics, like, you know, Mary pranksters, all that stuff, as opposed to there's an ingredient within it that actually is very constructive.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, there's like the common kind of like framing of it's always like, you'll sometimes come across like, you know, three waves, you know, the third wave that we're in like first wave generations of plant medicine, you know, psychedelics that are in plants like ayahuasca and Ibogaine, you know, mm-hmm. for generations, that was around. And then there was the whole, you know, the in like 50, 60, I see the 60s primarily le- leading right into the early 70s. And that whole time period when it was being used by psychiatrists and, and psychologists um, and being studied aggressively, all that was going great. And the data is undeniable. But you know there was so much political, um, you know, pressure back with with Nixon and and the war on drugs and you know lit, putting it into Schedule One and putting us in the dark ages, setting us back you know two three decades of no no research happening because it would have we would have been in a whole different state or situation by now if that wave continued. Um, but since you know now we have it in the third wave where you know with I don't know. I guess the culture has changed. Acceptance is a lot better now, and now the studies are are skyrocketing. The number of studies, and it's it you can't really stop it because it it's proving itself. But the FDA has a process, and you know they need to have a process, and it takes time for things to go through. So I would say, really, it's that got us delayed to here. But at this point now, there is a lot of money supporting studies for this, and there's a lot of attention on it. And, you know, FDA did designate, like, ketamine and Spravato yes, and psychedelics. They designate them as breakthrough therapies so it can speed up, you know, the process, but it still takes some years, right? And we're bringing something from Schedule 1 all the right. way to the medical use and that takes money a certain threshold of research um you know design that you need to meet and all that needs to happen so ketamine never got its approval iv yet only because it's generic it's been around since the 60s and it takes a lot of money to present your studies to the fda and get it and there's nothing that you can like patent on ketamine um so there's no Far, you know, big pharma, I guess, behind ketamine, they were trying to get their own, um, you know, molecules, offshoots of it that can be patented. That's how Spravato got its approval um, is because it's, it's S-ketamine, it's not ketamine, it's an isomer of, and they got the patent. So they supported it, which still did a big service to everybody. It got it pushed through. Then it's starting to get approval by insurance payers too. So all this is like a domino effect. And it's going to change. But I would say we're the very first psychedelic, the timeline, and it's from the brilliant work of MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, they've been the pioneers of this of these studies. It's MDMA, and it'll be the first one, hopefully. And that should be in 2023 is what we're hoping. Um, and that will be for PTSD specifically. That was the first indication and the first psychedelic that's been presented that got all the way through. We're in phase three trials up now. So
1: an MDMA, I thought was historically used in therapy.
2: It was, but not after it turned in, you know, this is schedule one, again, federally illegal, can't use it. So in the underground, I'm sure it was. um, But, you know, it can be very powerful in treating PTSD, especially Hmm. Um, we're talking success rates, like remission rates, you know, in the 80 above 80%. And, and it, even six months out and, you know, two years out, the, the rates are still really high. So it's just mind boggling how well it's working, but people need to remember that, and, and FDA knows this very well too, that it's not the drug itself. It's the drug with the right therapy, because all these studies are designed with, you know, integrative psychotherapy surrounding it and a way to give it where you get benefit if it was that easy then all the kids you know hitting the clubs who pop molly should all be you know (laughs) just doing great very well adjusted yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) types so (laughs) empathetic and doing well but it's not like that it takes more it takes therapy with it
0: okay well that 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 brings me to uh, a question so i did read how to change your mind um michael Pollan's book and he talks a lot about that importance of set and setting and and having that guide uh, to, to through these experiences. How do you address that in your practice? And how do you again? You you mentioned a little bit. How do you convince people that you can create this safe space for this kind of therapy? And and how is that experience architected to really make sure you get the outcomes that you're hoping for?
2: Yeah. So it's. I mean, it's that's a it's a good question because like you know there is different. I guess you know I guess arenas where you can go to a a retreat let's say they call they call them retreats right you can go to mexico or jamaica and there are multiple psilocybin retreats that have some of the the good ones even have you know tr- you know certified psychedelic assisted psychotherapists on staff and maybe the uh, physicians some of them maybe not so much but and that's one way to go do that and it's a whole different arena you know, my arena is, it's the medical paradigm is where our goal is to bring this into mainstream psychiatry and medicine and make it accessible for a lot more people. So ketamine is the only one now ket- that we can use right now. So ketamine is when each psychedelic is different. Like, so if I, you know, if it was an MDMA session or a psilocybin session, those are like eight hours long. I mean, wow. you know, you're and it's it can la- it's intense. It lasts a long time. You have usually two therapists in the room with you, and and it and it can you know go the whole day, and it's a whole different process. Ketamine is actually a lot shorter acting, right? So I mean, people come in, get their treatment. They're it's an infusion anywhere forty to sixty minutes, and basically you know, even anywhere five minutes later, people are feeling a lot more with it. Um, You know, worst case scenario, people might feel out of it for the rest of the evening. Um, But, you know, you wake up and, you know, it's it's not lingering or anything. There's no lingering effects and people wake up when there's no restrictions the next day. So I, what I do is this is what really it's important to me is that I, I prep somebody because it's in a doctor's office so it's not like I'm, you know, they're going to Jamaica and they're in a nice place <laughs> yeah. on the beach and there's a retreat, you know, ability and that and setting is is crucial. Like it is very important that your mindset is right and that the setting is safe, um, that they're the you know the person feels safe in that setting and it's conducive to having the best experience and getting the most benefit. So we can only do so much in a medical setting but there are some key things that we're going to do like one is prep the patient for what to expect make you know there's some basic things like make keep the room you know have usually we have like hue lights on right like you don't want a a big white you know, fluorescent tube light, Um, you wanted, most people wanted dark or a slight, you know, hue tint to a bulb. Then, you know, you want it as noise insulated as possible. So you're not hearing background noise from the office. Um, You know, just people walking by the door, Um, you know, you want it to look kind of like a spa-like feel in there. Um, you know, just kind of that setup and it doesn't look like uh, you're getting on a medical bed and you're in just a, and you hear beeps and, you know, little things like even yeah. disturbing somebody like put checking their blood pressure. We used to come in and check their blood pressure by the Velcro and pulling yeah. that off now we just monitor it on their finger stick so we're not bothering them the same way and then we put therapists in there or not depending on what kind of uh indication and what the preference is so it's just about giving a a good well like they know what to expect and you've prepped them and and all of that's taken into account is how that hour is going to go in that
0: room so there is active therapy going on while they're getting their uh infusion
2: it depends sometimes so uh, some some patients a might not feel even capable of doing I guess therapy during because they're just a little too out of it to really engage um, with a discussion with the therapist. Um, some need that support and they get it. If I give IV ketamine, most of the time people don't really want the therapy during, but the therapy needs to be there linked before and after in between these treatments and framed specifically for what are we going to get out of this treatment what is what are we going to work on what was the experience like what's the meaning of what you experienced and it, all of that needs to happen and it's usually done i tell most of my patients to try to like let's try to do therapy maybe like i don't know an hour or two three hours later like that day same day just yep. A little when you're coming down and you're able to really talk. Now, if I gave it to like a lozenge or something, and it's a different way of, you know, administering ketamine, that could be a 90-minute, you know, therapy session with ketamine facilitating it while, like after you've taken it, and now you're actually doing the therapy for a while because it's not as intense. Got it.
1: You spoke a little bit about SAFE. Uh, you know, a safe space to experience this. And, you know, that term gets used a lot in innovation, um, which is kind of paradoxical because really amazing innovations are inherently kind of unsafe. Like you have to kind of (laughs) break the ideas around you or break the concept of, you know, whatever it is in order to get through to something much more um, wonderful, I'll say. So, but when I talk to people about how they create safe spaces, they'll give me this litany of things that they don't do. So, that they don't create fear and they don't create mistrust. But in medicine, if you have a resistant patient to a therapy that you think would be profoundly effective for them, how do you establish trust by doing things proactively to encourage them to try to do this new thing? You know, because getting rid of addictions, conquering, you know, childhood trauma, dealing with PTSD, that stuff's inherently terrifying for a lot of people that suffer from it. How do you? Take them on this journey to that therapy that can help them to the remedy.
2: yeah no I mean there is a, there is a lot of resistance um, in many kind of situations with patients so I well a is that I'm usually taking my time with that right like you can't always convince somebody right away that this is the best approach now my my approach is always like education is how I would interact with the patient is educate them. As best as I can, um, and I'll get into all sorts of things like success rates, history of treatment and psychiatry. How did this develop? What to expect? I'll and I'll never pressure them that this is what you need to do. After a while, at some point, the light bulb kind of goes off. Where you know what? I, let, here's how I, I feel it works. I'll be like, how you haven't tried this, this, and this, and let's try it. I give it this much chance of success, but you never know it could work. So I'm never pressuring them. I'm like, if that doesn't work, I don't really know what else I can do except trying these new innovative therapies. So once, you know, if somebody feels in control of their treatment plan, they're they're getting educated. They know we're not just trying to push this new treatment on them without, like that's one of the worst things that can happen. And it's something I worry about within this space just because there's so many clinics now. You know, we want to make sure that like, they're, it's a big move. Like they need to know, they're putting time, money, and experimental therapy so you know i'll i'll go over all these analogies about how ketamine works, how to make the most of it um you know i'll tell them kind of like where it's heading in the future how we're going to make sure they stay safe, what's the like prevalence rate of different side effects that you know you can have during a treatment. I go over it all, and so we actually will do like a they 'll usually get an hour with one of our providers, an hour with the medical director all that is even before they get approved to start the treatment. So that's where we distinguish ourselves is that we're going to prep them and educate them. Now, honestly, half the time, the, the loved one, the spouse, the mom, the son, the daughter, somebody is bringing them in saying they heard about it somewhere. They learned, they researched it. And then they found me and they're, and they basically are, You know, telling their loved one that you have to try this, and if you, you know, sometimes it's even ultimatum. You're either gonna try this, or I can't keep supporting this. You know, like you have to take some action for yourself. So sometimes they go in kicking and screaming, like this is not gonna work. This is all BS, and that's it. And this, I'm just doing it because, you know, my loved one telling me to do it. I'll take it. Like I and, and I'll usually tell them, I'm like, I agree, that's a crappy situation to be in. But I'll tell them, like, honestly, I feel still hopeful that after one or two treatments, like tell them you need at least four, that you might be saying a whole different thing at that point. So I'll take my chances. And honestly, a couple treatments into it, I've noticed that a lot of times um, people are night and day different after they've had that. And the ones that were the most resistant, they are the ones who can completely have a turnaround that's night and day, and they're the ones who were kicking and screaming going in are the ones that are like, wow, that my life is, I feel like I have my life back again.
1: That's funny. That's the whole challenger becomes a champion. It's sort of like how you were describing the colleagues that didn't have a positive reaction to using experimental treatments and now are studying how to do it.
0: Yeah. Is this something they'll have to do for the rest of their lives, or is this something that you help them get to a more manageable state and hopefully they don't need it either for a long period or ever or how does that work you know if they have tried you know a lot
2: of other treatments out there things like transcranial magnetic stimulation or ect and they've done genetic testing for meds and and it's been a long chronic illness you know uh, to be honest a lot of times they will need to maintain on it at some interval okay but if somebody kind of comes in there maybe they're really not doing good in the moment. They're very acutely ill, but there still is a lot of ways to approach treatment. Like they need to do more therapy. They haven't even explored or other treatments that they haven't explored. Then my discussion will be that our goal is to graduate them off. Um, Once they've established on ketamine, it's working for them. We figured out how long it lasts for them. Everybody's different. Like some people can go six to eight months and come back for one treatment and they're good. And some people need to come every Two, three weeks and everywhere in between. So once we establish how long it lasts, then at that point, if it's lasting like four months at a time, I don't just say you gotta now try, you tried Prozac, now you gotta try Paxil. To me, it's like a risk-benefit thing. It, to me, there's more potential harm from that. And I'm okay with giving them one infusion every four months. But if they're needing it every three weeks or so, then we're starting to like optimize their meds, do other treatments, and ketamine will help them or psychedelics will help them get in that mindset. And their brain is, like I said, like neuroplastic and malleable. Mm-hmm. And if they do all that right, they can graduate off. But I'll never guarantee that to somebody because sure. you just never know. I mean... But the beauty is with psychedelics is different. Psychedelics, there's a, a lot higher chance you can do a few treatments and really not need any more, um, or ha- need one treatment every like so often, like two years, three years. You might you know go through a treatment again. It could be sporadic, but uh, with you know with ketamine we don't get that long lasting effect. I mean, I see people go months sometimes in between, the ones that are making lifestyle changes, working hard at therapy, doing everything else, making the most of no longer being depressed, which is honestly like a role identity issue. You're always, if you're just used to always being sick with depression or anxiety, it's hard to like get your mind to say, you know what, I'm, I will be okay and I'm not gonna go reverting back into um, the same depressed like mindset.
0: Mm-hmm. So so you've made a reference to other psychedelics and 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 we realize that you know a lot of these are not on the table yet, but what other kind of schedule and drugs or or compounds do you think really are worthy of this exploration in mental health care i so i mean I think all of them that fall in the psychedelic category
2: are worthy you know worthy targets to study um the primary ones obviously right now where there already is um, you know, movement to, you know, get these pushed through the FDA and the studies are happening. So it's MDMA for PTSD. And then there'll be um, other indications. You know, the company that I am part of now, uh, one of our main goals is to study it for traumatic brain injury. I think there's psilocybin, LSD are the ones that are already underway. And as well as uh, ayahuasca, which has got like uh DMT in there, and you know that a more powerful psychedelic. Um, there's ibogaine, which is really good for opioid use disorder, and so ayahuasca and ibogaine are you know like plant medicines. So they're mm-hmm. you know they're already available in nature. So all these medicines should be studied for a large list of indications. If I just had a wish, I would say they should be studying like pretty much every psychiatric condition should be studied for this ranging from, you know, like some studies that there was actually a study on nicotine cessation. Um, it could be like OCD. It could, I mean, you name it, it should be studied because it's such a broad, they're also broad acting. Studies are always approaching it in two ways. There's like different camps. And to be honest, some are okay with both. I'm okay with all of it. I think all this is good. It should all be studied, but some approach it with microdosing approach and going, you know, tenth of the dose, so it's sub-perceptual. You're not, you're not having the quote-unquote trip, mm-hmm. and some of that psychological benefit that can actually come from the trip, that ego death and all that stuff I talked about. You you need to be uh, at a higher dose to get those kind of improvements. However, you microdose might still lead to a wider adoption of psychedelics because if it's sub-perceptual, um, that will allow. A lot more people to feel comfortable, like going for it. You know, like if somebody who's never, you know, had in an altered state of mind. Let's say, you um, know, I've treated patients who, you know, they've never had a drink or never um, smoked cannabis or anything like that in their life, and this is their first mind-altering experience and they're doing it for you know, a valid indication and they're doing great now and all that but that that is like a you know a big thing that could be a barrier for people like i'm not ready to get on the rocket ship so to speak right. it is like a rocket ship Microdosing, or actually a lot of companies out there trying to remove the psychedelic aspect to the to the chemical right and turn it like offshoots of the, you know, the salicin molecule and where you're not getting the hallucinogenic effects and the mind altering effects and seeing what kind of benefits could be there. But the list goes on and on from traumatic brain injury, migraines, most psychiatric conditions, most addictive disorders, all of it.
1: I've often seen that, you know, there'll be an innovation in one market that proves to be a signal to operators in another market that their innovation is now possible. Is there any truth to the fact that the decriminalization and then legalization of cannabis and you know the market for CBDs that that taking off is somehow going to spur activity in mental health or investigation in mental health around psychedelics
2: legalizing marijuana state by state going at that you know it's like a domino effect it, it's a similar you know kind of thing happening with psychedelics but honestly i think that paved the path for how this is going to go
0: um it's going to be a state by state toppling Uh, the irony of this of course is that if i'm not mistaken you can buy like magic mushroom chocolate bars in washington dc it's like the polka dot bar or something like because dc itself is shroom decriminalized i guess yeah it is dc is decriminalized
2: um and just like you know there's a county outside of boston i think and then there's obviously like you know in oregon and you know in california soon but the thing is technically you can't actually you it's decriminalized it doesn't mean you can sell it yeah right so it's not like actually it's easy to get i guess it's legal and that it's more available because of just the lax laws on it but technically we're not like we can't say hey you can just go and buy it there and you're not but i'm sure it happened
0: obviously (laughs) you can't as a as a trained medical professional but the rest of us can can go (laughs) tell someone to do it it wouldn't be it wouldn't be like walk in the store
2: and buy it to my understanding. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe somebody knows differently, but I, I think it's just easy to get in that respect,
0: but not necessarily sold above ground. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. This is what I get for reading things on the internet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I have a random question then, since we're going down this path and we're talking about um, you know, what our friends might or might not do or shop for. Um so Several of my friends and I, and, and myself, are fascinated by the concept of
0: synesthesia. Sinis-
1: synesthesia. Synesthesia.
0: Yeah, you've talked about this before.
1: Synesthesia, which is so hard for me to like actually see it in writing and say it, pronounce it properly. Um, and, and I like to say that I think in abstractions. And, and the truth is, sometimes very complex things that I haven't even put into words, like things in in, in my work, right, appear to me as. Abstractions, right? So I see them in these different visual components. So, no, I'm not microdosing when that's happening, by the way. I'm just going to put that (laughs) out there. But is that the same thing as the way people talk about when they're under the influence of a psychedelic? They see music, for instance. How does synesthesia even work? Like, what is that all about?
2: It is a possible effect from psychedelics, is synesthesia and what you're describing, like the visualization. You can like visualize music or you can have an attachment, let's say colors might be attached to sounds or, you know, music might, it uh, can almost visualize music. All of that is possible. but it's not a guarantee. It's just one of the effects. When you see a visual of a brain, but you see connected to each other, the different parts of the brain and all the tracks that are connected normally. And then with psychedelics, you'll see like, you know, a few lines kind of scattering across the brain like shake all that up suddenly and plug in all the wires and give them a million different pathways again and things start connecting to each other your vantage point changes and suddenly you shake it all up and and you have all sorts of avenues you can take which allows you to see the light in different pathways and that you're not stuck in only looking down one psychedelics are powerful with that that's why there's a big connection with nature um Mm -hmm. you know and Nature and psychedelics go hand in hand. Um, I think, in general, the there's a uh, one of, besides synesthesia. There's this this um, whole connectedness, um, you know, empathy and a feeling of. Being one of a big, a part of a bigger scheme in nature, where you're not really viewing it through your little prism anymore. You're viewing yourself as part of a larger ecosystem. I mean, that's something that you'll hear about a lot when you're researching psychedelics. So nature really helps that, obviously. So you know, being that's why retreats a lot of times are outdoors, and you know, it's it's almost like a, a, a therapeutic benefit to be kind of immersed in that. Um, but. Synesthesia
0: is interesting. I mean, it doesn't happen to everybody though. You brought up connecting these pathways and some of the research that I saw actually likened people who are tripping to the brain of a four-year-old, right? That (laughs) uh, four-year-olds have those, you know, more extensive connections because they haven't been hardwired yet and that they're basically, everything looks beautiful to them because they're tripping all the time.
1: Yeah, it's unfiltered.
0: And you have five-year-olds. I'm mm-hmm. curious if uh, recently, as your children were, were four, uh, if that's something you observed. I mean, ultimately, th- that analogy, I think it's actually accurate from a from
2: a neuroplasticity standpoint. Sometimes it worries me like, okay, well, if somebody might get the wrong idea, like, you know, you lost your intelligence. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, but you actually can get more intelligent. They asked Picasso how he's so creative.
0: He says he strives to think like a five-year-old.
2: That's actually brilliant. He probably was on psychedelics.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a really good chance. I think you're probably right about that. And speaking of, we're going to maybe test out your own neuroplasticity. Has Anju warned you about the game we play I here?
1: didn't. I didn't. I owe you this. Okay, Ovid, we, we do this thing on the podcast and it's called Brand Theft Auto. But the idea is to be creative and associative and encourage everybody that's listening to kind of bend their minds. And, you know, hopefully you have some fun bending yours, too.
0: Okay, so, Abed, are you ready to play the game? Yes, sir. Let's do it. All right, we're going to take our first mashup here, and I want you to think about hybrid humans. In your brain, I want you to meld Sigmund Freud with Steve Jobs and tell us what their new mental health business looks like. Um, You get an app, maybe, and you basically
2: talk to the app and you give it your life story, um, and then it will... uh, Put it through some algorithms and calculate all the psychoanalytic history, and come out with like two, three actionable, like assessment and recommendations. (laughs) You have you have mama issues. Please proceed to the nearest Apple
0: store.
1: Well, I thought we were going to end up in the movie Her.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to start that uh, pretty soon. I think that now that you mentioned it, I think that's, that's a pretty easy app. As long as I don't get held accountable for actually helping anybody, um, it might be entertaining. <laughs> okay. We talked about synesthesia earlier. So for our next item, what I want you to start thinking about is, let's say a Michelin star restaurant wanted to design a dining experience enhanced by psychedelics. What would they need to know to ensure it's a positive experience? Uh, you probably wouldn't recommend they do this, so I'll, <laughs> I'll give you that out. But if they were determined to do this, what would you tell them they need to to understand? Uh, probably to make sure that they
2: have a safe place for somebody to have a little bit of their own space that's not polluted with noise. They need to do all that ahead of time, get the food order set, get everything situated, have a, a, an area for people to be where they're not overly stimulated, and then that's so everybody could have a private table maybe, and that each table, instead of a wait, waiter or waitress, it probably needs to be um, a therapist that also can bring the food out. Probably no knives or forks. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no weapons. That would be. That would be good.
1: I like the dining for one concept though. That's kind of interesting. You know, you go with a group and everybody sits at their own table and then comes out of the experience and compares notes, talks about their birth, their childbirth, their death, all the things in between.
0: But really, I'm thinking about you know synesthesia restaurant, right, where you're they. Ch- the color of the plates might change the flavor of the food and things like that.
2: Overall, don't know if it's a great idea.
0: <laughs> you you cannot recommend something
2: like this, I'm sure. I definitely hesitate. You know, that's like, <laughs> it's just intense, you know, like trying to eat your dinner. And they're just so, it's just such an intense experience. So like when you're getting that treatment, I can't even imagine somebody sitting at a restaurant trying to do that. But I can't imagine someone having an appetite. Yeah, actually, people don't really don't. Yeah. I mean, they, they can't really eat for a while. They're actually quite nauseous. I'm, at least with, I know ketamine gets you pretty nauseous, but even even with high-dose psychedelics, you can get like nauseous. So,
1: so maybe so. it's a virtual meal. It's not like a real meal. Maybe yeah. we just spray things that are aromatic or...
2: Yeah, the music, though, if we were doing it, the music would have to be... Uh, you got to be mindful of that. Music and psychedelics is a whole other field. So there's some research and science behind it. There's definitely attention on it. Um, you can't, you know, like and there's a lot of like even with ketamine there's ketamine playlists out there um there's companies like wave that focus on this and and you know having the right crescendo of music at the right time that times up with how your experience is and what kind of music it is when you are coming down um from the you know peak of it so all that matters we tell like our patients all the time like don't um you know don't put Metallica on or DJ Khaled I had a guy get a panic attack once because like I, I re- you know he hit the buzzer I run in and he's like panicking and I hear DJ Khaled screaming at him and it's just <laughs> like you know we try to prep him like you, know, you got to keep it like you know instrumental soft like lounge like, I kind of like that kind of approach and once you're used to it then you can start introducing vocals especially not people screaming at you or angry you're actually very suggestible from a lot of these medications, like ketamine, psychedelic, you know, and the wrong suggestions, you know, like ang- anger, um, things like that, um, that actually cause anxiety. People perceive words differently. We tell them don't put on like the, don't, there's TVs in the room for visuals, but don't put on like a sitcom or something yeah. like that.
1: You Definitely know. no gohera. We're not going to listen to that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no National no. Geographic um, predator, prey movies or anything like that. Oh, sometimes people will do that without the sound.
2: We usually—I tell everybody watch this modern no living living art on Netflix. Oh yeah, and it's just good with their own music and then just visuals of like image scenery and stuff like that.
0: You well, know, I can see now that you're talking about it. This is a good place for machine learning and algorithmically generated music, maybe to tie into the the uh, the vitals of the person being treated.
1: Well, it would be neat if you could integrate AI art into the whole equation too. So if you could actually sound out words around the visuals that you're seeing and then art was actually produced right in front of you.
0: That That's an awesome idea. But I was thinking the crescendo would happen at the exact right time because you're monitoring the person and, and you know, kind of biologically in, uh, on their journey. We'll get there. We'll get there
2: soon. And eventually it'll get there because, you know, as we're our, like, ability to, like— it, you know, visualize brain in real time um, and see what, you know, the functions that are happening. And, and there's just more and more uh, technology surrounding, the, you know, visualization of the brain functions. And that that's being tied with psychedelics already. People are already researching. I think eventually that's a brilliant idea, Andrew. And I think it would happen at some point where that is a possibility, you know, where where your entire experience is actually getting, you know, guided by AI in a way.
1: I am actually secretly obsessed. It's not even a secret anymore. I'm obsessed with AI art. So, Justin, that's our next venture after the podcast.
0: Uh, No problem. I'm I'm on it. (laughs) Question three. If business schools started offering classes in microdosing for innovation, what should the curriculum cover?
2: Actually, you know, microdosing...
0: It's been around. People have obviously
2: been doing that, especially in Silicon Valley and all that. But like from this research yes. standpoint, it's not very, I guess, yet totally established at all. I know in general, it's a different you know, benefit from psilocybin microdosing versus um, LSD microdosing. So, I mean, because you can get more of like a focus cognitive enhancement, right, from microdosing LSD, whereas you might get more creativity and empathy for microdosing psilocybin. So it's different effects. So I think that's one thing that should be taught in that is <laughs> hey, what is your goal here like with microdosing? And if it's creativity, stick with, you know, maybe psilocybin. And then definitely about dosing. It's all rude you know a rudimentary level knowledge here. I mean there are you know there are some experts out there at microdosing but the studies have to really catch up to it so it sounds honest. like the
1: question you really wanted to answer is macrodosing
2: uh, <laughs> yeah i mean you know creativity it's just a i don't know it's it's just so hard to say cuz you can like some people might not really feel that they're getting a major boost in creativity from psychedelic treatment they might i guess you know my i always i'm always coming at it from like a psychiatric medical viewpoint where i'm used to people that are struggling and they're you know pretty sick and and you know so it's like almost like just them not wanting to end their life or them finally re-engaging somewhat with the family and like trying to participate in life again like that's a huge win so the creativity part a lot of times my day-to-day i'm not deal i'm not
0: i don't have my eye on that p- outcome you know which makes sense because what you do is not a game. So thank you for humoring us uh, and playing our game.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today, Abed. It's been a pleasure, first of all, unpacking your journey to innovating medicine in the way that you've done it and hearing about where you are in terms of your practice now becoming part of a larger platform to really drive change in mental health and change in research and clinical studies um, throughout the United States. I think it uh, bodes really well for decades of improved care and improved patient outcomes. Um, So, Really appreciate you taking the time and for breaking down all of those complex things around medicine that may not be as relatable um, to most. So, thank you for educating us on all of this.
0: And if you'd like to give yourself a little plug, where can people learn more about Wisana? So, they can go uh, to basically wisanahealth.com. Uh, you can
2: Google Wisana, W E S A N um, A, and you'll probably get a lot of stuff about. Um, you know, the founder, Daniel, and his journey, which is very compelling, as well as what the company's up to. um, And, you know, that's the best place to go. Um, You know, my practice is APSketamine.com, but that is going to, you know, that's going to dissolve into Wisana clinics. So um, that's the best place to go is probably their website.
1: Excellent. Awesome.
0: Well, congrats again. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. The platform and being able to talk about this, uh, you know, and so openly and freely with you guys. I totally enjoyed it.
0: And maybe someday we can redo this entire podcast fully tripping on something. <laughs> that'd be fun. And, and then afterwards then we should go to dinner at Alinea. <laughs> there you go.
1: Have a trippy meal.
0: Yeah.
2: That, that'd that be fun. And yeah. And then compare this one to that one. I'd be curious to see the difference. <laughs>
0: W- won't oh, we right. be sad when we realize that we're not we're no more interesting, uh, fully baked? As i say.
1: I, <laughs> I highly doubt that. Just just <laughs> saying, I, my bets on the other end of that.
0: Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up. A <laughs>
1: <along. laughs>
2: As I can get much, 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 much,